Welcome to Broadway Radio's Tell Me More. I'm your host, Matt Tiamanini. Here on Tell Me More, we strive to talk about projects and topics that don't often get covered on theater podcasts. On today's episode, I had the distinct honor of speaking with Los Angeles Times entertainment reporter Ashley Lee. If you are a regular Today on Broadway listener, you will likely remember us discussing her article, 40 Black Playwrights on the Theater Industry's Insidious Racism, just a few weeks ago. In the piece, she had first-person accounts from 40 Black playwrights about their personal experiences with various forms of racism while working in the American theater. As Ashley and I discuss, the article finds some of its inspiration in writer, director, and actor Rada Blank's film, The 40-Year-Old Version, which is available on Netflix now. Blank, who has spent much of her career as a playwright, has taken her experiences as a black woman in the theater world and turned them into a critically and publicly acclaimed film, which I highly recommend. In our conversation, Ashley and I discuss the impetus for the article, the process she went through to get playwrights to go on the record about their experiences and what they hope will be the next step for the American theater confronting its racist past and present. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Ashley Lee. So, in your piece, you start by talking about Rada Blank's movie, the 40-year-old version, which the title still trips me up, like like a Freudian thing. I have to go back to the 40-year-old version. But is that that's how the article starts. Is that where the idea for the piece itself started or was that kind of a a happy accident of melding idea with something that was very much at the forefront of a certain part of pop culture at the time when the article was being put together well the movie came out at sundance right or like i think pre pre-covid right yes that's so that's january i did personally did not go to sundance but multiple co-workers were like hey you need to see this movie it has some interesting theater context issues in it. Um, I think that it'd be something you're interested in. So as the protests after the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were really bringing up issues of systemic racism in every industry, um, I've been thinking about all of these microaggressions or just blatant aggressions um, that, that people have to go through just in the effort to try to make art. And um, my editors and I have been trying to figure out a way to talk about this issue without singling out any one person, because we really want to explain that this is something that's built into the culture of working in this industry. And it's unfair, it's hard to pinpoint, but it still needs to be discussed. So when I was watching the movie, I was like, wow, this is exactly everything that we've been talking about, but haven't really been able to put into words because again, it's just been so normalized. Yeah. So it very ambitiously, um, only a few weeks before the movie came out on Netflix, I had a 90 minute conversation with Rada about making this movie and everything she went through as well as everything before that and everything that inspired the movie And we were just saying that everybody has a story like this. And I ambitiously pitched my editor, could I include 40 voices who have nothing to promote, but want to speak their truth? And, you know, it's a lot to ask people to share their scars like this, um, especially when 
they're not touting their own projects, but I'm so grateful to um, the generosity of everybody who's involved uh, and my editors and collaborators who helped make this happen. It was honestly like such an undertaking that I was so proud to, to work on. And what's so incredible about the piece, uh, in addition to just the 40 specific people that you have, there's so many uh, incredibly important people in there. But I think the most important and impactful part of it is, like you said, the fact that they were all willing to share parts of their lives and parts of their careers that I'm sure was hard to be willing to put out to the public eyes. I'm sure these are all things that perhaps some of them have talked about with close friends. I wouldn't be surprised if some of them have never mentioned them publicly to anybody else at all. But when you started to kind of go in and explain what you were hoping to get, I'm sure these folks all had tons of examples, but how were they, I'm sure it's different for each individual, but what was their reaction to being willing to put these things on full display for everybody uh, to kind of get a glimpse behind the curtain into their lives and careers? It was a wide span of reactions. Yeah. Um, I reached out to probably a hundred black playwrights in total in order to get these 40 voices. And it was a very detailed pitch letter about this is the nuance that I'm going for. And this thing that you may, like you said, have not as shared with, a journalist, let alone anyone else, yeah. um, is important and I want to hear it. And I definitely knew that as a person who is not Black, that I didn't want to profit off anyone's pain, that I just wanted to uh, give this issue a platform and just to definitely let them speak for themselves, which is why um it's so much more their voice than it is mine. Mm -hmm. So when we started talking for some people, it was very quick phone calls and it was, it was to the point and it was, I'm, I'm letting this go. Other people got emotional, understandably, of course, but it's things that they haven't talked about some for 10, 20 years. And so many people were apologizing for getting emotional. And I'm like, no, this is, this is yeah. traumatic. This is something that you have buried and that may have guided your decisions throughout your career. And uh, one of the contributors said so much, like, I'm sick of holding on to it. I, I'm letting it go with this conversation. And I just thought that was so generous um, to do that. And so, so wonderful. And some people uh, via email just shared you know, multiple and they're like, take your pick, whichever works better with your story. And it was amazing that there, there was not a lot of overlap as in there are so many different ways in which this issue can appear, which is the worst thing, but yeah. um, worked for the story, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, and what I've found so interesting about kind of this time in our culture is that so many people have been speaking out um, about things that have kind of been swept under the rug, whether it was obviously the 40 people in your piece or um, someone like Griffin Matthews posting uh, his video on social media, kind of calling out some of the both macro and micro aggressions that he's faced as a black writer in the theater community. Yes. But so much of it is 
from what I've seen and heard from other people talking about it, it is a cathartic way that it's almost been built into the nature of the theater community to just accept these things and to shoulder them and to bear them internally. But the act of actually getting them out there, not only is it cathartic for them personally, but it also allows other people to express their own experiences. I mean, very similarly in a lot of ways to what happened with the Me Too movement. And uh, there's obviously a lot of nuance and differences between them, but I think in the the similarity in speaking out about what has happened in the entertainment industry has opened up other people to speak about it and then hopefully forced the people who have the power to do something about it to actually make changes. Have you, was that part of the decision-making process for any of the artists that you talked with to be willing to share their stories? Definitely. I do think that when these things happen on on a personal level, so many of them shared it. They're like, did that just happen to me? Yeah. Am I overreacting? Yeah. Yeah. And like, is, is this real? Are you really doing this right now? And and when you're in that situation, especially when you're not in the position of power in which and the per- person in the position of power is the one doing the aggressive act, you do, you know, crawl into that shell and you do be quiet and you do kind of just hold it in until you can even process it or even reflect yeah. on it later. And some people never do, but by sharing this story and for anyone who reads it, it legitimizes it in a way that might not that might have not have been able to be done in the situation while it's happening. And to see it concrete on the page, in digital, in print, um, for others to realize that, hey, this is wrong. If this has happened to you, this is something that you should not swallow and you do not have to be quiet about it and let's speak up together. Like that is so important. And I've gotten multiple emails from people who are white male gatekeepers of the American theater, who have been thankful for the story, who have apologized to me, even though I'm not the one who needs the apology, but <laughs> yeah. it seemed to be eye-opening for some audiences, which I think is great. While I don't think it's the responsibility of the victim to ever educate the aggressors, I am so incredibly thankful for their generosity and hope that this does enlighten minds as we're all just, you know, in a time of reflection right now. So yeah, it's so much of their thought in sharing was forward thinking and that it's just amazing that they did that. Yeah, I think one of the things that's been so encouraging from not only this part, but even to the Me Too movement, like I mentioned before, is the um the kind of the responsibility that one generation has taken for the next generation and hoping to prevent the uh, aggressions and the racism and the sexism and the misogyny that they've experienced for being passed down to the next generation and hopefully people speaking out is one way of many that can help prevent that from being something that continues full force. And I don't expect either of those things to disappear within a generation, obviously, but hopefully it can start to make some people aware of, uh, of these things that they're perpetuating, whether they recognize it or not. But you mentioned the fact that people are reaching out to you. And one of the things, you know, that I've been a fan of yours and, and followed a lot of what you've done for a while, but uh, I felt like 
literally everybody that I follow in the theater world and some not in the theater world were sharing this piece because of of how truthful it was and how impactful it was for you as the person who thought this up and put it together. What was that response like for you to see this become a thing, to go viral, so to speak, um, in an age where it's tough for any newspaper article that's not about political or sexual misconduct uh, actually doing that? I mean, it's always nice when you work on something and it actually gets seen. (laughs) But I I have to say it was particularly great because as someone who regularly writes about theater, my plate emptied real quick when all of the country's theaters went dark and I'm writing about TV, I'm writing about movies, I'm keeping myself plenty busy, but of course my heart is with this industry that is really suffering right now. And I appreciate so much what other theater journalists have been doing in this time, but I, for months, have been asking myself, like, what can I do um, to help this industry, even though it's not, you know, currently operating at full force, and to be able to contribute something that could help so many when we're all back up and running is like, I mean, people write about the theater because they love the theater, not to be, you know, critical and shoot it down or anything, but this was, this was such a labor of love from everybody involved and to be able to, to make such an impact at a time when all theaters are dark was, was truly amazing. Uh, Yeah. I, I am, so so grateful for everyone who shared it everyone who read it everyone who clicked on it and scrolled a little bit even um (laughs) and one of the things that i thought was i don't know if uh, i don't know the right word for it because it's not good necessarily but i saw so many black theater artists whether they were writers or actors uh performers or designers or whatever sharing their experiences that mirrored a lot of the playwrights experiences as well and Uh, Again, not something you necessarily think of as a positive because you don't want anyone to go through these things. But um, it was nice to see that other people felt that they had the platform now and the support to speak out about these things. We saw that back in May and June and it kind of died down for some obvious you know reasons as people focused on, you know, the election and, and the virus and all that stuff. But it was nice to kind of see people reminding the theater community while it's down. And especially as we kind of start, this was timed really well. And I don't know if this was on purpose. I'm assuming not. Uh, But as we started talking about there being a Tony Awards ceremony and stuff, it kind of timed perfectly with the idea of let's keep this at the forefront of the discussion of what theater will be like when, and I'm assuming if it eventually comes back. It was incredibly strategic that this dropped right before these Tony Award nominations came out. We were hustling day and night um, because those announcements, though the announcement that the announcement was coming, yeah, <laughs> the announcement that the nominations were were coming was very short notice. And even though we definitely just wanted it to be at the forefront of the conversation, we didn't know who was going to be nominated. But I didn't want this important topic to be drowned out by whoever did get nominated. The fact that it dropped hours before Jeremy O'Harris set a record with Slave Play Mm -hmm. is 
just beautifully poetic, but I definitely wanted those nominations to be taken with this conversation in light, with this context that we need to think about if we are gonna be giving out awards, we need to think about what the road to those awards looks like. And it's not as clear cut and as clean as we'd like it to be. That was very intentional. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. And it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, and, and it, it was so beautifully timed. And I've had, uh, as listeners know, my issues with the way the Tonys have been rolled out this year and what they have done and what the league has done and hasn't done. And so I, I think that this was a beautiful way to remind people about what really is important. And I think I, I'm one that thinks the awards are important for a lot of different reasons, but they are not necessarily the most important. Um, so I, I think that this was perfectly done. I, um, it was, this was not necessarily part of what made it into the piece, but I wonder in your conversations with these artists, did they have any, ideas about what was next about what they think were any of the structural changes um that could be made whether it's in commercial theater or not-for-profit theater or just theater in general that could make things like this less prevalent to where you don't you can't send out emails to a hundred people and have so many people have stories at their fingertips that need to be shared is do they have any forward-looking thoughts about what could be done to make black voices um, more readily accepted in the American theater? A lot of people, again, it's not, I do want to say that it, while it's not the, it's not their jobs to come up with what the solutions totally. are. Um, I did ask probably all of them about what are the next steps they want to see. And over the past few months, we've all gotten the same emails about how different theaters are reacting to this moment. We have lots of announcements of reprogram seasons to include more black playwrights, to include more black stories. Great, love it. We have a lot of announcements of new hires, of a mm. brand new special position that happens to be filled now by a person of color or a black playwright or a black artistic director or something, a new special position that they did not have before. Great, lovely. Um, but across the board, multiple participants in this piece, and I completely agree, said that with real change, to have real change, it comes from the top. And if you have the same older white male artistic director at the top that you did before who didn't make any changes. I mean, we can all hope that it'll suddenly click and that change will trickle down for when we all reopen, but multiple of them said that if the best thing for an artistic director to do for the art and for the community is to step down, to step aside and to let someone else take the reins and make real change, then that needs to be the thing that's done. Um, Tracy Scott Wilson said it in the piece. I'm gonna quote her. She said, if you want real change in programming, you need to have a real change in leadership and not some brand new special position for you to just hire a person of color like everyone is doing right now. 
Um, so while I appreciate the efforts that multiple theaters are taking right now, it's, it's not landing exactly how everybody would hope because it does seem a little bit hollow and a little bit like lip service. So while we're still dark, if people can take a moment and reflect and say, is this real? Is this authentic? What are we really doing to help our community of artists and our community of patrons and our potential audiences? Then the answers will reveal themselves. And we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I think has been so encouraging over these past few months is not necessarily the not-for-profit organizations, you know, adding positions. And some of them have done more than just add, you know, token ceremonial positions. Some of them have made legitimate changes at the artistic mm -hmm. level, director level. And that's great. But what I yes. think has been so interesting and, you know, encouraging is black artists and black producers saying, you know, for lack of a better word, screw it. I'm going to do it myself. Um, mm -hmm. And that, you know, whether it's, you mentioned Jeremy O'Hara, he's not in the piece, although the slave play director, um, Robert O'Hara is, um, what he's been doing with his, um, I guess they're, they're calling it a slush fund that he got from HBO <laughs> yes. to do shows. Or just earlier this week, we heard about um, this new uh, industry standard group, which is the first BIPOC uh, commercial theater organization. Like it, the fact that people are just saying, I'm tired of waiting for the people who are the gatekeepers and have been for decades and centuries to do it. I'm just going to do it myself. And I feel like when that starts to happen and when they can actually start to push to have a seat at the table, that's going to be when the real change happens because I just don't trust the people who've been in power mm -hmm. forever to, you know, do anything out of the goodness of their own heart. And maybe that's cynical, but I feel like uh, we can wait and we can let them, like you said, pay lip service. But until they are forced to to contend with people who are um, making room for themselves, I, I think that's really the only way we're going to get it. I hear you. I, I do want to say that it's it's such a great reaction when people say, I'm going to do it myself and they build this whole thing. And, you know, people like David E. Talbert, who's been doing it his mm -hmm. way with black plays and black romantic comedies and just making money and proving that the audience is there and throughout his career still not getting legitimized. And we're only now getting his musical movie on Netflix in a few weeks called Jingle Jangle, which mm -hmm. I recommend everybody check out. But when theaters open up again, audiences need to support these endeavors that people set up on their yeah. own. Because if, if we say that's great that you set it up, but we too are still only putting our money behind legacy theaters or these big names and not supporting the people who are doing it themselves, then we're as complicit in the systems that we're criticizing as well. So yeah. making the extra effort to be in the crowds and safely, of course, but to be supportive <laughs> with masks, um, wearing a mask. Yeah. Distance. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but we do have to make that extra effort to support them, not just by, you know, retweeting and sharing and liking and commenting, but also, you know, putting our money where our mouth is and supporting these artists in their efforts to take control. Yeah. And audiences, as we've learned from, especially the film industry are, 
often an excuse for why those gatekeepers say that they are going to stick to something that they consider safe and which generally means white. Um, and when they finally give the opportunity for something to be made uh, by and about people of color, it generally does far well than they led us to believe. So I I agree. I hope that the audience in theater, which is different than the, th- the, the wider film going movie going audiences, but I, I hope that you're, or I, I agree with you. I, I hope that the audience um, puts their money where their Twitter activism is uh, as well, because that will be the thing that really um, hopefully gives some of this some staying power. But um, I'll end on this, uh, Ashley, in this piece. And I, I don't want to necessarily put you on the spot to pick a favorite, so to speak. But is there one that if you think that it encompasses the entire essence of this piece and what you were trying to have communicated from it. Is there one of these little um, sections by one of these playwrights that kind of encapsulates the entire message of the article? Oh, man. <laughs> I, what, that's what I, like, I didn't want to put you on the spot by this, but like, I, I wonder if there was one that kind of got to the heart of it all for you. Would it be Rada's? I mean, what is it um, that or, or somebody, one of the, the maybe the lesser known playwrights in there? Mm, I think I'll pick a couple. If oh that's yeah, okay. feel fine. Pick as many as you do. All forty, if you have to, that's fine. <laughs> no, the the ones that stick out for me that say more than just you know the traumatic words that they've had to hold for many years. I think about I think about Coleman Domingo's words a lot. Because <laughs> not just from this piece, always. but always, yes. <laughs> As a life ethos. Yes, but, uh, yeah. I think about I think about his his conversation because He's someone we know so well through as a playwright and also as an actor. Mm-hmm. And we're like, on the outside, we're like, that's great. He can do multiple things. He's on screen and he's on stage. Like, what a multi-hyphenate, as, you know, the trade publications like to call people like him who can do multiple things so well. And when we spoke, he expressed this massive love for making stage work and the fact that the stage does not love him back and that's why he's had to go elsewhere to get paid to get the love to get work and the thing that I really want to stress is that if we're not treating black playwrights correctly in the theater they will go elsewhere Mm -hmm. they will you know lean on their acting work they will so many people I spoke to for this are writers for TV and film. Yeah, there's and a lot of them. Yeah. It's of course, get paid, do what you need to do. But the fact that they feel that multiple feel they have to do that in order to survive because an entire industry will not welcome them with open arms the way that TV and film do. That's wild. And that is completely unacceptable because yeah. If we do not change how we behave, there will be no more black playwrights. They will be black playwrights who write TV and film. Yeah. And it will be our loss. Yeah. I mean, I think it's great that, you know, Katori Hall has P Valley or Dominique Mauriso is writing for that or Jeremy O'Harris is writing for TV. I think that's awesome. And I want Maybe. them I want them to get as much money as they humanly can. But man, I wish it wasn't because 
they can't get works done as often as they as a white colleague or a white contemporary can in the theater because uh it's it's is very much our loss as theater fans exactly i have some other projects that are coming out later in the year that address that issue but um but yeah it's i think that we can all do better and that's the thing is that we neither of us uh, are black i am a white man in the theater and it is incumbent on us like you said it's not the person who's been victimized's job or the group that's been victimized's job to fix these aggressions it is on us to do everything we can to to reverse this course that has been running parallel with the american theater since its inception so the other one i think a lot about that has that really guided how i reported out the rest of this story is the, one of the earlier conversations I had was with Donja R. Love. And that account was so much about how the white gatekeeper needs to listen when something is brought up. And we need to listen from a point of love and a point of openness and learning as opposed to being called out or being mm-hmm. attacked in any way. And honestly, the story's huge, but my role, honestly, was listening, letting yeah. these people speak, letting these people share their wisdom and just putting it on the page. I think what we can all take away from this is to listen from a place that thinks about the future of the theater industry and the artists that we want to cultivate and hear from, because it's it's that's really what it's about is listening and getting better without calling ourselves like called out or attacked or anything like that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. My name is Matt Tamanini. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMatt, and you can reach out to Broadway Radio on both Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at Cashlee Lee. That's C-A-S-H-L-E-E-L-E-E. And we will have a link to her article, 40 Black Playwrights on the Theater Industry's Insidious Racism, in the show notes and on broadwayradio.com. Tell Me More is produced and edited by me. Special thanks, of course, to the wonderful Ashley Lee and the man without whom none of Broadway Radio is possible, James Marino. Thanks again for listening. And remember, there's a dream in the future. There's a struggle that we have yet to win. Also, always get a second scoop, and when you get the chance, ask people to tell you more.